in celebration of our 100th anniversary, we're breaking the model. And what we're doing is creating a think tank that is run for and by the next generation of policy leaders. Hi, my name is Eric Dink. The Georgetown Public Policy Review is really excited to have Mark Zuckerman on the podcast. Mark currently is the president of the progressive think tank, the Century Foundation. He served in the Obama White House as the de deputy director of the Domestic Policy Council, leading teams on key initiatives, including reducing student debt, increasing accountability at for-profit educational institutions, reducing workplace discrimination, increasing wages for home health care workers, and expanding access to job training. Prior to that, as staff director of the House Education and Labor Committee, he helped win passage of landmark legislation such as the Affordable Care Act, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, and the Student Aid and Fiscal Responsibility Act. We really enjoyed our conversation when we talked a little bit about the modern labor movement, the future of healthcare, for-profit colleges, and the student debt crisis. If you enjoyed our conversation, please go ahead and like and subscribe. Uh, share it with your friends and family. Uh, we really enjoy the conversation with Mark, and we hope that you do too. We're really happy to have Mark Zuckerman on the podcast today. Mark, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and the Century Foundation, and sort of how the Century Foundation is different from other think tanks? Sure, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to join you today. Um, the Century Foundation is celebrating its 100 anniversary this year. It is one of the oldest progressive think tanks in the country, and it's committed to making policy change uh, both in Washington and around the states. And one of the ways that Century Foundation is different than the traditional think tank is the old model think tank would write long reports and, and publish books in hopes that somehow the wisdom of that research in a book form would filter down uh, to legislators and to advocates and make change. And I think what the Century Foundation is committed to doing is taking uh, more responsibility to make sure its research and its policy recommendations are accessible to average Americans. And that in our model that we work closely with advocates, with grassroots, with policymakers in the beginning of the research process to make sure that what we're working on is what average Americans are interested in. And that is a very different model than the traditional uh, think tank. We also have developed fellows who have a lot of experience in Congress, in state legislatures, and uh, in administrations who know uh, how to move legislation and how to advance policy, uh, whether it's in Washington or whether it's in the capitals or at the city and municipal level. And I think that's an important uh, non-academic uh, type skill set that is important in terms of making change. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Next Gen 100 initiative and what the goals of that program are? Sure. And it's, uh, it's the Next 100 is a new think tank that will be started in June of this year. We just finished um, receiving applications for it. And uh, 
trying to do is engage the next generation of policy leaders in a very different way. The traditional model that most think tanks and uh, academic settings use in terms of um, uh, building out the next generation of policy uh, experts is to embed them within existing policy teams, to mentor them uh, uh, by fellows or by um, you know, other super, through supervision. Uh, and they're usually working within the agenda of the existing framework of a think tank or an academic institution. So in celebration of our 100th anniversary, we're breaking the model. And what we're doing is creating a think tank that is run for and by the next generation of policy leaders. And we're letting this next generation decide their own priorities. We're giving them resources, in this case, for two years full time with benefits to run a think tank on their terms, whether it's social justice or inter intergenerational fairness, immigration, gun reform, college affordability. We're letting them design and implement their own research and policy initiatives. And that is a whole new model of doing it. And we're doing it for a couple reasons. One, um, we think this new generation is up to it. Uh, when President um, Obama uh, gave his farewell address, he said something that I, I, I remember very clearly. He said, this generation that's coming up is unselfish, altruistic, creative, and patriotic. And we, we believe at Century the same thing. And, uh, you know, because of our respect for this generation, we wanted to do more than just um, give them mentoring and make them a part of our institution. We wanted to ha have them have the opportunity to have their own institution with their own priorities and make policy in their way with all the support that they need or want uh, from the Century Foundation. But, but they will have the independence to pursue a policy agenda on their terms. That's really, really exciting stuff. Um, wanted to sort of switch gears uh, away from sort of the way that the Century Foundation is doing this work and, and to the topics that uh, you all have been tackling recently. Um, particularly, I'm interested in your own report on uh, sort of rebuilding the labor movement for the modern, modern day. Um, so, you know, the modern economy has changed quite a bit and labor union participation has gone way, way down, particularly in the private sector from its peak uh, way long ago. Uh, what sort of ways does the labor movement need to adapt to be uh, sort of a viable movement in the 20th century? Or 21st well, century? You're, you're exactly right that private sector unionization is down to 6% of the workforce, and it was over 30% back in the 70s. And the bottom line is that workers have lost clout in the workforce to advocate for better wages, better benefits, better schedules, leave time, health and health and safety protections, uh, and there's you know definitely a strong relationship between the decline in union, unions and the decline in wages and bargaining power. Now, generally, you know what what in a normal uh, political situation, Congress would have taken steps to modernize the National Labor Relations Act, which is the law that uh, governs the relationship between uh, employers and employees, employers and unions.
unions. But for many years, uh, there's even though significant legislation has been introduced, uh, there's no legislation that has been able to make it all the way uh, through to Congress. And so why it's important that advocates for workers continue to press Congress for reforms, uh, that may be some ways off. We don't know. Uh, but in my report, finding workers where they are at tcf.org, I say there should be a, a new business model to rebuild the labor movement, and that could be done without changing uh, federal law. And what, what I observed is that in the private sector and in the political sphere, in, in particular political campaigns, these organizations have made use of uh, digital tools digital marketing to reach, in, in the case of campaigns, millions and millions, tens of millions of voters, in the cases of private sector business, uh, tens or if not hundreds of millions of consumers. These modern techniques of, of identifying and targeting potential customers or voters uh, have become very sophisticated and successful. And yet the most successful uh, uh, organization, uh, social movement in the in the country, the labor movement, has never taken advantage of these digital uh, marketing tools or digital platforms to win new members. And yet they have a great product. The average union member makes uh, $400 a month more than a non-union member. And so what I call for is for labor to change the business model and instead of the traditional model where they'll send uh, a few organizers physically to an employer to try to organize the employer's employees. Uh, what, what I'm suggesting is that they use algorithms and direct marketing campaigns to let workers all over the country, especially low and medium uh, wage workers, that if they're sick of low wages, if they're sick of poor scheduling, if they're sick of having no sick leave, or benefits, that here is a place, here is a platform, and here is contact information uh, where you can start your own um, membership drive to organize your own workplace uh, to start a union and participate in, in union activities. And it has to have all the support uh, that, that you can give them. So if the employer starts uh, retaliating uh, or violating the law, that there's help on the way. And, you know, the shame of it is, is there's this kind of help for all kinds of uh, things that consumers use now. If you do your taxes, you can click a button and get an accountant on the phone in 30 seconds uh, to help you with your taxes. Well, it should be the same for workers, that they should be able to get help in answering the 15 questions to file a petition to get an election, and they should be able to find a union very quickly and get help in terms of organizing uh, through digital tools. But first, you have to let, let the customers, in this case workers who, are, who, who have low wages and who want more clout in the workplace, you have to reach out to them and let them know. And the only way you can do this in an economically viable way is to use these modern techniques that political campaigns and, 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 and private uh, businesses use now. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, anecdotally, uh, the graduate student workers, TAs, uh, research assistants, graduate assistants, 
uh, at Georgetown just just won a uh, union election and have um, are, are in the process of bargaining right now and their uh, their process as far as advertising was very very heavily driven via social media um, because they were organizing across programs across uh, degrees whether it's a master's student versus a PhD student and they spent a lot of their time and a lot of their volunteer hours on social media posts, um, sharing things on Facebook, Twitter. So I think that that's kind of an interesting uh, sort of anecdotal evidence that this is the way that union, unions have to organize now. That's right. And, and you know, um, young people uh, are obviously have, have grown up using uh, digital media and uh, digit and, and social tools and are familiar and comfortable with it and, and will transact business that way uh, when you know while some older workers have taken it up uh, it's not always the case so I think this is particularly could be particularly effective with a new generation of workers that are uh, willing to use social media and digital platforms to organize uh, to communicate with other workers and then ultimately do the thing that uh, is most important is take the step to file a petition with the National Labor Relations Act and, you know, form a union and have that clout in the workplace that, you know, uh, work, workers don't have now. And I, I salute the graduate students who all over the country are doing that. At, um, at the Century Foundation, we have a union. Uh, here, our associates are organized. Uh, by the communication workers and uh, you know we're proud to have a union and uh, you know I, I, I signed a first contract with them and um, a accepted membership without an election and I think uh, uh, there are employers and employees across the country that uh, are willing to do this if, if the workers step up and say uh, this is uh, important uh, for my family, uh, for wages, to earn enough uh, to pay my student loans back, to uh, you know buy the first house. Uh, that, that no, there's no help on the way from Washington. Uh, they're going to have to take action on their own uh, to improve uh, their their working uh, conditions. So I wanted to bring in sort of another side of the argument as far as how a lot of uh, the decrease in wages, how the decrease in wages is uh, sort of distributed as far as cause, causes go. Uh, I'm thinking about people who sort of tend to argue that, yeah, the union rate decreasing definitely doesn't help in the wage and in, in employer wages or employee wages growing. But on the other hand, there's a lot of other factors that might contribute to that. Um, other things that have sort of flattened the labor supply curve to take it to sort of a uh, labor economics perspective, such as globalization and trade and things like that, that you sort of hear a lot about. Um, so how do you sort of assign the relative weights to these other factors that have come about in a changing economy and also uh, union membership? Well, look, there's, there's no doubt that globalization and more intense competition, you know, can have the effect of suppressing wages. If you can outsource to a workforce, uh, for a lot cheaper, and we, we see American companies did that and, and continue to do that in a big way. It, it makes, um, 
you know, it makes the job a lot harder at home when you're trying to negotiate uh, for wages. So let's let's just stipulate that that is a factor in the reduction of bargaining power, but it doesn't have to be. And you know, what when you look at what's really happened. Uh, the business community for the last three generations has really done a number on uh, unions. What they've done is systematically undermined the ability to organize by engaging in union busting, in threatening employees who say they want to organize, by retaliating against them, by firing, by using the procedures of the National Labor Relations Act to delay actions, and delay the, the elections. All these actions by employers have become the norm. In other words, there is not a cultural backlash to employers uh, flaunting the laws, the National Labor Relations Act, and the enforcement of the laws are so weak that they pay, you know, virtually no penalty. At worst, they're told by the board to, you know, stop doing those bad things, but there's no real sanctions in the law. And so they've succeeded in changing the culture that says it's okay to mistreat employees. And what I'm suggesting in this paper, finding workers where they are, is that you can't change the culture that exists now unless you have a massive movement of employers, employees, who say, I do want to organize, I am going to organize, and it's not okay uh, to flaunt the law and to violate the National Labor Relations Act. There are parallels to the Me Too movement in that uh, the Me Too movement uh, wasn't about right away changing uh, the laws, it was about changing the culture, changing the norms that allowed uh, harassment and discriminatory treatment to go on, even though it was unlawful. Uh, but to, to use you know, the culture to change uh, what's acceptable uh, uh, in the way that men treat women uh, in the workplace or otherwise. This is the same thing with the abusive workers uh, who are interested in a union that enough of them stand up and say, uh, we're going to file for an election. We want a union here. You can change it. So employers who start violating and retaliating will, will see backlash in their communities um, and even among their peers. We've, we've talked a lot about sort of traditional unions and traditional workers that sort of have uh, fellow employees that they can organize with. Uh, another development in the the modern economy has been gig workers and gig economy workers. Uh, I was curious as to how they might be able to protect themselves when union uh, membership might not be available to them or what sort of legislation, maybe expansion of the uh, unemployment insurance eligibility, for example, might be a worthwhile route. Um, so for those that aren't able to organize and who aren't able to have an election for a union, what sort of protections they might be able to come up with? Well, I think you're raising a really important topic, and it's about the fissured workplace that, you know, traditionally um, most workers worked in an employer-employee relationship. And the way the laws developed is all the protections 
that were developed like unemployment insurance, like workers' comp, like pension benefits, um, retaliatory actions and discrimination against employees, all of those protections and safeguards uh, were built up within this traditional relationship. And what we've seen, you know, over the last uh, couple decades is that employers have decided intentionally that to evade their responsibilities as an employer, that they were going to be creative about creating different relationships with the people who do work for them. And, you know, we see this in, you know, buildings that subcontract the janitorial services to a, a low-wage employer and try to evade responsibility uh, that way uh, by contracting out so there's not an employee-employer relationship. You know, Uber is the classic example, but there are many, many other examples of that. So they don't have to pay all the benefits and protections that are generally due. So this is an example where the law has not caught up to uh, the reality in the workplace is that there are all these new relationships um, and, you know, it's commonly referred to as the gig economy. Uh, and I think states and some municipalities, and there's discussion at the federal level of trying to, you know, redefine who gets these kind of benefits or think of parallel structures. So, you know, anyone can get health insurance, you know, like the ACA, anyone can get uh, uh, coverage for health care, for pension benefits, uh, for workers' comp, for other kinds of benefits that employees uh, used to be able to count on but can't anymore because they find themselves uh, out of that relationship. Uh, you mentioned the ACA, and I think that's sort of a good uh, opportunity to talk a little bit about health care. Uh, and as the Democratic primary heats up, uh, and even with ongoing uh, uh, judicial battles on the ACA, I was curious about healthcare being a topic again in 2020. Um, you got the chance to work on the ACA when you were part of the Domestic Policy Council uh, in the Obama administration. If you could make any changes to the ACA's structure or uh, anything about it, I suppose, what, what kind of changes would you make? Well, look, I, I think there's some low-hanging fruit um, that could be done. One is expanding the tax credits. Um, that are available under the law. So uh, it lowers the cost for low-income families and expands eligibility so more middle-class Americans can receive assistance. So that's one thing is just make it more affordable for a group of people that you know are finding it uh, unaffordable. Uh, there, there's, um, on the Medicaid part of it, uh, you know, there's been a number of proposals, one by Jean Lambrew, um, who was a fellow at the Century Foundation and also worked in the Obama administration. She had a very creative idea for those states that have not adopted the Medicaid expansion. She was proposing that the that in cities and that cities and counties within states. So if you're in Texas and Texas decided not to expand Medicaid, that you would allow Houston if Houston wanted to have its uh, residents covered by Medicaid expansion that it could decide. Of course, Congress would have to enact that. But, 
you know, it's an interesting version of, of local control. So I would, I would definitely consider that. Some people have talked about 100% federal reimbursement rather than 90% to the states to induce more states to to take it up. Remember, as the as the law was originally designed, uh, all the states that participate in the Medicaid program were required to uh, do the expansion. And of course, the Supreme Court stepped in and said it was voluntary on the parts of the states. I think some people, I think, uh, would consider uh, a public option uh, because in some markets, um, a public option, whether it's a Medicaid public option or a traditional public option, would provide more competition and um, states could subsidize that public option to make sure that there was a, a low-cost um, availability of health care, especially in a, in a weak market. So more of a, a public option type proposal might be a more reasonable next step as opposed to the Medicare for all system that's be being proposed? Or I guess to ask a, put, put a finer point on it, uh, is Medicare for all a worthwhile immediate next step or would a public option be something that is a more reasonable intermediary step? You know what the great thing about the, the campaign that's coming up is, is that very question is going to be litigated and should be litigated. And it's a credit to, I think, the progressive movement that that is the focal point of the discussion. It isn't anymore what incremental, whether we should make incremental changes to the health care law. It's how big should our changes be. And so in some ways, I think the progressives um, have succeeded in changing the terms of the debate in healthcare in a way that really hasn't happened uh, for decades and decades. And everything is on the table in terms of, you know, improving the Affordable Care Act so it can be real, really universal and more affordable. Or, you know, do you go with something like um, Medicare for All that eliminates private insurance over some period of time and, and leaves you with a single payer plan. That should be litigated. And look, in the end, when you're working on legislation and you're, you're in Congress, uh, you're on those committees that want to do uh, as much good as you can, you'll take whatever um, the traffic will bear, whatever you can get the votes for. And I think this election will be defining uh, as to whether the country is ready to go to a Medi Medicaid, Medicare for all, or whether uh, you know most people will feel like we need a couple steps before we get to a, a, a totally public option type coverage. I think it's really fascinating that healthcare is still the sort of driving topic in a lot of policy discussions, and it has been for pushing a decade now. Um, I, I just think that that's a fascinating development of, of politics, not something that I would have anticipated to continue to be such a hot topic for so long. You know, as, as someone who was, um, you know, on the Hill and worked on the Affordable Care Act, uh, and to watch it be vilified um, and to have, uh, you know, several Congresses uh, go by where the act and, and its successes were mischaracterized, and to have it uh, be viewed as a political liability for those to, who supported it, to, you know, fast forward to these midterms here, and 
uh, people who supported the uh, Affordable Care Act and uh, supported more aggressive involvement in making sure that people have uh, high quality affordable care was considered to be a very high political plus. And those who you know, called for repeal were punished by the voters. And so that is a big turnaround. And I think it's, you know, it, it took a long time for people to um, understand the benefits of the Affordable Care Act and to get used to having the kind of coverage uh, w without regard to their pre-existing conditions and to see, uh, you know, young people who are 26 and under to be able to get coverage, to see millions and millions of Americans who, who finally uh, could count on some reliable coverage. Uh, once that became the norm and uh, one of the parties wanted to take it away, I think that's when you saw the backlash and that's where you saw a lot of support for the act. So it's, it's been a, a, a slow transformation, but it's, it's sure and it's certain right now. And I think people call for repeal of the act at their detriment now. Uh, the, pol the political football has sort of been tossed around quite a bit on healthcare and now it's, like you said, completely turned around. Uh, I'm interested a little bit more to sort of change broad topics, but still stay with the work uh, that you did when you were part of the Domestic Policy Council. You worked a little bit on uh, accountability for for-profit higher education institutions. Uh, and that's changed quite a bit as far as the uh, provisions that were uh, part of the Obama administration regarding for-profit institutions. And that has uh, been rolled back since uh, the Trump administration has been in power. Um, what are sort of the concerns at the basic level about for-profit higher education uh, institutions? And what are some of the ways that those had been previously addressed and might not be as uh, addressed as well now? So here's, here's the thing with for-profit colleges. Uh, I'll share with you a couple statistics. We, um, we are, uh, the Century Foundation is, is working to support strong accountability provisions for for-profit colleges, both at the national level and in several states that are looking at legislation in light of the Trump administration's pulling back on consumer protections for, for students. Here's a statistic that um, is very surprising. In New York, 72% of African Americans who attend for-profit colleges default within 12 years, while the default rate is only 25% uh, for those who, who attend public and nonprofit colleges. So 72% default at for-profit colleges of, of African American students, while only 25% default who attend public and nonprofit colleges. These for-profit colleges are putting young people into debt. They're promising vocations that will allow students to pay back that debt, but they're failing to meet those promises. And the statistics are crystal clear that they're putting a new generation in debt. We found that four in 10 who went to a for-profit school ended up with earnings below those who only went and had a high school diploma. So in other words, going for these almost 40%, those who went to for-profit colleges, paid the tuition there, went through the program, 
ended up with earnings less than a high school diploma, they actually went backwards because those people who had high school diplomas got a couple more years work experience who are making more wages. So for many students, uh, for-profit colleges have turned out to be a scam, a, a terrible investment. And that's not to say that there aren't some for-profit colleges that succeed. And the good news is because of uh, the work the Obama administration did, we have uh, some good data on who's succeeding and who's not succeeding. And the Obama administration had sanctions for those schools uh, that uh, weren't succeeding in helping a student get enough uh, income to repay their loans and would close down a program if too many students weren't able to repay their loans because the program wasn't, wasn't a good enough program to get people the wages necessary to pay those student loans. And so uh, given that the Trump administration is trying to reverse those, we're working with states to try to fill in the gaps, states like New York and California, Maryland, and others who, who, who want to um, protect students where uh, the Trump administration is, is rolling them back. So you mentioned a couple times uh, the student debt crisis and, and or just the increase in student debt generally. I think it's really interesting that what's often not realized in sort of the popular discourse about uh, student loans is that a large percentage of that, of the default rate is on not huge, huge numbers or a huge, huge amount of a loan. Um, and you know, you have medical students or law students taking out a big portion of what makes up total student loan debt, but they're not necessarily the ones who are defaulting. Um, so I guess, is there anything else that might be misunderstood about uh, the student loan crisis or what sort of paths forward you see as far as addressing those issues? So I was on Capitol Hill working on these higher education issues for 20 years. And the strategy back then was to increase the Pell Grant as much as you could to make loans available uh, at a lower interest rate for students. And the combination of those two things, if you kept up enough, you could, you could make sure that students uh, were able to, uh, low-income students were able to get to college using a combination of Pell and maybe some loans. And for middle-class students, uh, they, they would have low-interest loans that they would repay. The cost of college uh, has continued to go up and up and up. And even at, at the state colleges, as states have reduced their commitment to, uh, many states have reduced their commitment to higher education. To me, that strategy that was used on the, on the Hill for 20 years to try to keep up uh, is over. That the day where the, the federal government is just going to increase Pell and increase loan, um, the ability to borrow, without engaging the states, uh, at least the state colleges, in a partnership that says we're willing to help students uh, uh, with college, but you have to be a partner in terms of, you know, keeping up your investment and keeping up uh, your part. Because what some states were doing is the, the federal share would increase and then governors would take money back and then use it for other parts of state government. In some cases, they were using it for tax cuts, taking money from higher education and putting it into tax cuts uh, for the wealthy in their own states. And that's just unacceptable. So I think the new vision is that the federal government has to be a partner with 
uh, state colleges uh, to make sure that uh, students uh, can have, uh, I would say, a debt-free experience in, in college um, and to make sure that the states are doing their part to keep costs down. Uh, because otherwise, we're just going to see the spiraling of debt. We're, always, we're already over $1.2 trillion in terms of aggregate debt. And if the states don't play a role here, that's going to continue. So something that I think is interesting with this whole discussion is weighing different types of credential. So a return to a bachelor's degree remains pretty high. We've talked about rising increase increases in, in tuition, but the, the return to a bachelor's degree versus a uh, high school degree is, is still pretty high. And as are some sort of more intermediate steps like associate's degrees uh, and, and things like that. I'm kind of curious more about, uh, about education options that are more than a high school degree, but less than a full bachelor's degree, and how those uh, programs should be supported, not supported, what they should look like in a modern economy. So let me say uh, one thing from the federal level. The federal government spends about $60 billion a year on traditional two and four year college degree programs. It spends about $5 billion a year on job training and vocational education. The money it spends for higher education is essentially what is entitlement spending, meaning it doesn't matter how many people go to college, uh, the, 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 the funds will be there to, whether it's Pell Grants or student loans. So it takes all, uh, all comers, take all comers. Uh, that is not true with the job training and vocational programs. That's a very limited pot of money, and as soon as a a local workforce board or a county runs out of funds for job training for the year, that's it. They cut it off because there's uh, only $5 billion in the pot, and it's what's appropriated each year. And, you know, that kind of treatment of non-degree but important uh, vocational and cer uh, certificate programs is just unacceptable in this economy. We can't keep shortchanging uh, young people who, who want to go into non-degree vocations and make a living for themselves and shortchange, shortchange them with a, a significant lack of investment in their futures. And, you know, the universities around the country, they have the clout and the leverage in Congress to win a strong loan program and a strong uh, uh, Pell program. But young people who aren't on that track who don't want to be on that track. They don't have an advocate like that uh, to get the kind of resources that we're putting in the, the, the two and four year colleges. And I also say uh, we're working on a very significant piece of research that will be out next, next month that demonstrates that community colleges, which are really a gateway for many, um, many people who aren't taking the traditional four year uh, path, that that communities are significantly underinvesting in community colleges, and that if you want to increase the pipeline to more career and vocational type programs, that you need to invest in more in the community college, one, to get more people in the door, but two, to keep more people. There, there's a huge dropout 
rate at community colleges that is happening because they're underinvested. There's not enough support for the students who are going to community colleges. So I would say those two things, more investment in community colleges, substantially more to get people to, to, to get to community colleges and stay, and then start treating the, uh, the, the path, the credential path, the non-degree path with some parity to what we're putting in, in, in two and four year institutions. Yeah, so I think that the community college investment is, is a huge, huge point. I mean, also, as far as the investment goes, I'm under the impression that more support as far as career guidance goes, as far as learning what students' interests are, uh, and making it so that, uh, particularly if a student's trying to then go on for a four-year degree, uh, four-year degree or transfer into a four-year degree, um, to get a credential that means something and uh, has some value in the labor force, um, I think that that's like a, a huge, huge benefit. Uh, I, help me if you if you can. I think there's a program uh, in one of the southern states, either Tennessee or Florida, that um, ensures that if you enter a community college, you're simultaneously earning credits for a degree program that has more labor market value than just a general associate's degree in liberal studies or something like that. Well, Tennessee has been a leader in, in you know, trying to provide tuition-free uh, community college, but the real, one of the real challenges uh, that students face is the, the, the financial aid system has, has set up you know, to, to help with tuition and books and fees and not much for actual living costs, especially if you have a family. It's not, it, it, it's not appropriately built into the cost of going to college. And what we found for many of these, um, uh, especially young people, uh, but it could be uh, people returning to, to college, is trying to surmount without parental support or other support the, the other costs besides tuition, books, and so forth, just transportation, childcare, uh, food, the real costs associated with not working and making a commitment to finishing a program. So the programs, the financial aid programs need to be redesigned to take that into account. And then I think we'll see some appreciable change in you know, how many people will get through these programs. And once they complete uh, their, you know, their earning capacity, uh, you know, will, will go up significantly from, from a dropout. So one last sort of topic in this, um, sort of subtopic in, in this discussion that I'm kind of interested in is uh, the value of apprenticeship programs. They're much more popular in other states, or other countries rather, probably for cultural reasons if I, I had to guess, but uh, can you talk a little bit about the value of apprenticeships? So, you know, I think that people who are wanting to do more in job training have been talking about apprenticeships for many, many years, and there are some successful models here. But I agree that there's a cultural uh, uh, shift here as opposed to some other countries is that employers have not generally embraced the apprenticeship model and 
you know, what I've observed is even well-intentioned Department of Labor at the state level and at the federal level to try to uh, spark interest in the uh, employer community to do more on apprenticeship has not been that successful. And I, I think before we, you know, as we think about making significant new investments in apprenticeship, we have to think of a way to change the culture for, for businesses to think about, you know, is that, can that be a pathway in which employees come to the em employer and uh, g get trained and open up, uh, you know, new avenues. But frankly, you know, businesses do report that they don't want to get tied up into a, a state or a federal bureaucracy in terms of uh, apprenticeship. So how do we do that in a way that, uh, you know, is, is uh, encouraging to employers and opens up new opportunities for, for young people uh, to learn uh, a trade or a skill uh, at that employer? nicely back to what we talked about at the beginning with unions. I think that um, the, the maybe an employer fear besides being tied up into the bureaucracy like you mentioned is that there's probably a, a little bit of an association with apprenticeships with unions and if that previous culture around unions were to change perhaps the uh, culture as far as uh, apprenticeships would, would start to evolve a little bit as well. I think that's a great insight, and I, I think the union movement um, runs, you know, some of the best apprenticeship uh, programs in the country, and they, they uh, have a great deal of expertise, and we should listen to their advice and their judgment as we're, as we're trying to fashion a new, new model of apprenticeship. But I, I think apprenticeship as a concept has a lot of bipartisan support, and uh, you, you could put a, a very significant investment in there and give uh, young people, uh, especially in uh, high unemployment areas, both rural and uh, urban areas, uh, a new pipeline uh, to, to, to get to a, a skill or a trade. Uh, and it would be a, a really smart policy investment, but you have to have to design it in a way that there's there's buy-in. Absolutely. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time, so I'm going to close with a question that we ask all of our guests on the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. Are there any books, papers, news stories, or if you have one, uh, any podcasts uh, for people who really enjoyed our conversation today and would like to learn more, um, or any recommended reading in general? So here I would I would just say there are two two books um, that I've read recently that I I think are interesting. Uh, one is called Lower Ed: The Trouble, the Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in a New Economy. It's by Tressy McMillan Cotton, and American Amnesia: How the War on Government Led Us to Forget What Made America Prosper by Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson. Those two books, one on, uh, you know, why uh, for-profit colleges need um, some, some uh, regulation and why they, they have to be held accountable, uh, written from an author who worked at a for-profit college and saw what they were doing from the inside. 
and then American Amnesia, which uh, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson remind the country that a lot of things that uh, this country, that America prides itself in, in terms of its infrastructure, its economy, uh, have roots in investments that were made by the state and federal governments. And with all the attacks on uh, uh, federal and, and state government, it's it's good to remember uh, the importance of those of those investments that have been made over the years. Well, I'm looking forward to checking both of those out. Thanks so much for spending the time today with us, Mark. We really appreciated it. Um, and are looking forward to maybe checking back in with you uh, in the future. Well, thanks so much for your time.